0: Hello and welcome back to Invisible Hate. I'm Asad Butt,
1: And I'm Sadia Khan.
0: And our story today takes us to Roseburg, Oregon. In October of 2015, Tracy Hugh lays face down on the floor of Classroom 15 at Umpqua Community College. She presses her face against the cold tile, her heart beating wildly out of her chest. Several students lay huddled to Tracy's left and right, frozen with fear amongst the group. Several lay unmoving, towering above the huddled mass. A 26-year-old man stands with a gun in his hand, and one by one, Tracy's classmates rise at the request of the gunman. Within seconds, she feels them crashing back down beside her, crumbling to the floor in a spray of bullets. Tracy closes her eyes and attempts to slow her breathing. With any luck, he'll think she's dead. There, she remains quiet and still as the blood of her fellow classmates pools around her. This is Invisible Hate. Welcome back to Invisible Hate, a weekly true crime podcast in which Sadia and I attempt to uncover the ugly truth behind various hate crimes, both recent and historical. This is our first full episode back after Thanksgiving break. Sadia, how's the last couple of weeks been for you?
1: Not bad, I said. So, as you know, I was traveling. I was in London for five days. Oh, yeah, London. Uh, with my family. We did a lot of sightseeing. We ate a lot of good food, especially Pakistani food. Oh, very nice. I just felt good in London with, you know, all the stuff that's happening in the world, all the suffering, the pain, and its impact on the US. I feel. London was much-needed break for me because I did not want to celebrate Thanksgiving this year. I just did mm. not feel like doing the whole Thanksgiving thing, right? Yeah. And I was able to spend time with my family. I was able to eat good food. People in London are really sweet. They are kinder, I guess.
0: Oh, wow. I would not have guessed that. Kinder than New Yorkers or kinder than Americans?
1: <laughs> right now, kinder than Americans. Look, okay. I love New York. New York is my hometown. I love New York to bits. So I won't say anything bad about New York. But the rest of the U.S.
0: Wow, Sadia. OK.
1: Yeah. But I'm glad to be back. Glad to be doing this podcast episode with you by the way how was your thanksgiving i know you probably celebrated it right
0: yeah i actually cooked my first turkey ever oh my gosh Um, you did! and yeah it was a great experience i figure you know now that isha's born i need to cook a little bit more and going from zero to a little bit more is cooking a turkey i guess so yeah it went very well everybody liked it we gave her a little bit of the turkey as well and did she enjoy it she enjoyed the turkey. She didn't like the mashed potatoes. She liked the stuffing. But overall, I think it was a pretty good Thanksgiving holiday. And then we went to a concert as well. So just kind of like, you know, good family time as well um, for us over here.
1: That's good. But where were you, in Boston or Oregon?
0: Oh, no, I was in Portland. Um, okay. Out here in Oregon. Yeah, we we did not we decided not to travel uh, this year because of uh, everything that's going on.
1: Wonderful. So Asit, do you want to get started?
0: Yeah, let's do it.
1: As a reminder, many of the cases that we discuss involve crimes committed against minority groups. Our goal is to determine through a discussion of the nuances and complexities of these unfortunate situations whether or not these transgressions can be considered hate crimes. And this case is certainly anything but clear-cut. Let's start at the beginning.
0: It's 10 a.m. on October 1st, 2015. Several students sit in a writing class at Umpqua Community College in Roseburg, Oregon. They sit gathered in Classroom 15 in Snyder Hall, a building that houses many of the college's English and writing classes. About 30 minutes into the class at around 10.30, a 26-year-old student named Christopher Harper Mercer enters the classroom. He's wearing black clothes, a bulletproof vest, and, get this, a smile. And as you can imagine, Sadia, he also has a gun in his hand. And so when he enters the room, he raises his gun and takes a shot at the back of the classroom. It's just a warning shot, but still, as you can imagine, Sadia, pretty scary. He then orders the students and the teacher to go down on the floor and tells them to lie face down on their stomachs. The students and the teacher, they huddle in the center of the room, their faces pressed to the floor in fear. In an interview with ABC News, survivor Anastasia Boylan recalls this terrifying moment. I could just, I could hear everyone breathing hard and and freaking out and crying and he um, he asked everyone to move to the center of the classroom. So we all kind of just like army crawled to the center. Sadia, as you can imagine, the situation, you know, she was so terrified. Next door in classroom 16, a student kind of hears what's going on and gets up to shut the door. She basically wants to prevent the shooter from coming into that classroom. And as she does, Harper Mercer shoots her several times in the stomach. He was just standing in the entrance of the other classroom and saw her trying to close the door and shoots her a couple times.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: So stepping back into classroom 15 now, Harper Mercer then places a backpack on the front desk and pulls out an envelope. He then looks at 18 year old Matthew Downing and he says, hey, kid with the glasses, you're the lucky one. I won't shoot you if you give this to the cops. He then hands Downing an envelope and instructs him to sit at the back of the class. And that's where Downing will now be forced to watch the horror that is about to unfold.
1: Okay, so this is really, really horrific to me as you're narrating. He makes this kid sit at the back of the class and watch all that's going to unfold. How traumatic is that, right?
0: Yeah, totally. You know, and as... Police will later discover the envelope contains a flash drive with Harper Mercer's six-page letter outlining his motivations for the shooting. This will soon be referred to as his manifesto.
1: Can we stop calling it manifesto? I feel like manifesto still seems or sounds more professional. This is just fucked up, right? So why... Are we using these terms?
0: Yeah, I think that's that's a great point. I feel like we've talked a lot about people with manifestos, and I agree, we're giving it too much credence.
1: Exactly. So what happens next, Asad?
0: Yeah, okay. So back in the classroom now, Serena Dawn Moore is one of the students on the floor. She has crawled out of her wheelchair onto the floor next to her service dog. Harper Mercer immediately commands her to climb back into the wheelchair And so Moore follows the instructions and starts to move back up into her wheelchair. But that's when Harper Mercer shoots her multiple times. Instead, Moore crashes to the floor and she dies. The first of many of Harper Mercer's many victims. Wow. And now begins uh, Sadia a sickening pattern. One by one, Harper Mercer instructs the students to get up only to shoot them back down. He asks several students personal questions before shooting them. This includes questions about their religion. According to the statement released by Matthew Downing, that student that was sitting in the back, he says, and I quote, The shooter asked one of the other students to stand up, and when he did, asked him if he was religious. The student said he was Christian and was shot. He then had another student stand up and ask him the same when he answered Catholic. The shooter then asked if he believed in the afterlife. That student said, I don't know. And the shooter thanked him for standing up for his beliefs and shot him. And you know, Sadia, regardless of their answers, Harper Mercer seems intent on executing as many individuals as possible. One by one, he shoots his victims. And remember, sitting in the back of the class, gripping that envelope in fear, Downing, Matthew Downing, sees it all. He watches in horror as Harper Mercer shoots his professor, Lawrence Levine, in the head, laughing as he does so. He then watches as many of his classmates suffer a similar fate. Here's survivor Anastasia Boylan again, who was shot in the back, but thankfully manages to survive. I didn't think I was gonna make it. I um last thing I remember praying was uh that my family and my loved ones and that the family and loved ones of my peers would somehow know that we're all okay. From her
1: wheelchair, inside- I said this is so tragic and so traumatic. As you were narrating this for a second, I thought maybe he was going to target people based on their religious identity, but it seems like he was killing students indiscriminately. There wasn't a particular religion or religious identity that he was targeting, at least for now.
0: Maybe the right answer didn't come up. Maybe if someone said a religion that he agreed with he wouldn't have shot them but it seems as of right now no matter what religion that they answered or no matter how they answered the question he was going to shoot the victims mm-hmm. so so they remember this was at 10 30 when this all started at around 10 40 police arrive on the scene two officers in fact approach the school neither man wears a bulletproof vest Noticing their arrival, Harper Mercer leaves the classroom to engage in a shootout with the officers. He opens fire on the policemen, who fire three rounds in response. One of those bullets lodges in the gunman's side. And when he gets back inside of that classroom number 15, Harper Mercer lays down on the ground and shoots himself in the head. The rampage has finally ended. Oh my god. Yeah, sadly, and this was, remember, this was just like 10 minutes.
1: Within 10 minutes, all of this transpired within only 10 minutes.
0: So, you know, as soon as Harper Mercer shoots himself, wasting no time downing the kid in the back of the classroom, shouts for another student to kick the weapon away from the gunman's hand. The surviving students then sprint from the room as fast as possible, as you can imagine, They you know, they want to get away from the scene. They exit Snyder Hall to find a slew of police gathered outside. And the officers, you know, they don't know what's going on because obviously it's chaotic. And so they actually point their guns at Downing as he waves that envelope, you know, at them. But thankfully, you know, nothing horrible happens outside. You know, once it is confirmed that he is in fact not the shooter, Downing hands over the envelope. And over the next few hours, students and staff are evacuated from the scene. The police search each and every one of them. They check their jackets and bags for weapons before putting them on buses. They're then driven eight miles south of the college to Douglas County Fairgrounds, where family members anxiously await their arrival. Some are blessed with joyous, relief inducing reunions, and others, as you can imagine, are not so lucky. That's because Harper Mercer leaves 9 people dead not including himself and at least 7 others injured, 3 of whom were in critical condition. Umqua Community College will never be the same.
1: Wow, I said this is so incredibly tragic and being a mom, I can imagine what these parents must be going through. It must be devastating for them. And I'm sure the community must have been devastated as well. How did the public respond to this atrocious event?
0: You're right, Sadia. The other community was absolutely devastated by the shooting. Many were left to grieve the loss of loved ones, while others remained traumatized by the shooting, unable to process what they had seen or experienced. But in a moment of shared loss, the community came together like never before. Here's how one resident explains it to NBC News. If anything come out of this, it's everybody it feels a lot more close-knit. They're coming together
2: to mourn and to heal.
0: And on the night of October 1st, 2015, hundreds of community members gathered in Stewart Park for a candlelight vigil in honor of the victims of the shooting. The college soon built a permanent memorial in their names. Nine illuminated metal globes constructed from cutout hearts perch atop stone columns overlooking the Umpqua River. Residents and businesses put up signs and stickers proclaiming, Roseburg Strong. The shooting also elicited a strong response from politicians. On the day of the shooting itself, President Obama gave an impassioned speech at the White House in response to the shooting. In that speech, he not only expressed his support for the community, but made a fierce plea for gun control in the wake of the shooting.
2: There's been another mass shooting in America. That means there are more American families, moms, dads, children whose lives have been changed forever. That means there's another community stunned with grief and communities across the country forced to relieve their own anguish, and parents across the country who are scared because they know it might have been their families or their children. I'd ask the American people to think about how they can get our government to change these laws and to save lives and to let young people grow up. And that will require a change of politics on this issue. And it can change. May God bless the memories of those who were killed today. May He bring comfort to their families and courage to the injured as they fight. And then,
0: you know, just a couple days later, on October 9th, President Obama traveled to Roseburg where he met with several survivors and family members of victims. However, several Roseburg pro-gun advocates protested the president's visit. They were angered by his push for gun control. Here is one of them in an interview with NBC News.
1: He's here for a gun grabbing agenda and, and you know, our, our town is in mourning. I so said you would think that a personal tragedy such as this one would awaken people to the dangers of guns and the need for gun control. But I guess not, right? We've seen this play out so many times. And yet people are so polarized when it comes to enacting gun control laws. And honestly, for me, somebody who did not grow up in the U.S., I don't get it. I really don't. The amount of tragedy, trauma the U.S. has experienced, our children have to undergo drills as to how they would protect themselves in case of an active shooter situation. It's just pathetic that we are still debating whether or not we should have strong gun control laws in the U.S. Yeah.
0: I I don't disagree at all. And I think that people are just hardened in their positions now and any sort of sensible uh, attempt to create good gun control laws are going to be met with this kind of reaction. And that's unfortunately, you know, the state of the world that we live in right now.
1: Yeah. Anyways, we are going to take a quick break. But when we return, we'll be discussing Chris Harper Mercer in greater depth. Welcome back to Invisible Heat. So said, can you tell us more about the gunman, Chris Harper Mercer?
0: Yeah, certainly, Sadia. So from a young age, Chris Harper Mercer was incredibly angry. His mother, Laurel Harper, describes her son as perpetually mad at the world. In an interview with the L.A. Times, she said, and I quote, I mean, he was born angry pretty much. I mean, even the doctor said he was one angry baby.
1: What the hell, I said. Like, this just doesn't make sense to me. Like, a baby? You can tell how angry the baby is?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely foreign to me, uh, for sure. At the age of five, Harper Mercer tried to jump out of a moving car. And then also, according to the LA Times, in his later years, Harper Mercer was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, ah. which can limit social development and lead to behavioral meltdowns. Yeah. And then according to Oregon Public Broadcasting, he received several other psychiatric diagnoses, some of which conflicted with one another. He took medications for many of these issues, but ended up giving them up due to the side effects. And according to a lot of reports, his rage just never went away. In the LA Times again, that interview with Laurel Harper, his mom, she explained that when he was small and acting angrily, she would wrap him up in a bear hug until he gave up. But in recent years, she felt she had no solutions for his uncontrollable rage. At the age of 19 or 20, Harper Mercer once pointed a shotgun at her out of anger Thankfully, she was able to calmly talk him down, but she refused to call the police, fearing that they would send him to jail. Harper Mercer had never held a job, but earned some money by selling his used video games. He then used that money to buy guns. Investigators found 13 uh, that belonged
1: to him. Oh my gosh, I said this is so mind boggling. Somebody like... Harper Mercer could have access to and buy 13 guns?
0: Yeah, it's wild to me. That That
1: is wild. And I do understand his mother's concern, right? I don't think we have systems and structures in place where people can get the help that they need. I'm sure a mother, a parent, would be reluctant to send their kid to jail. And to be honest, I don't think jail is the right place for rehabilitation in any case. Sure, I'm with you on that.
0: You know, Sally eventually Harper Mercer convinced his mother to try shooting, and the two shot together at gun ranges in Roseburg and Eugene, Oregon, like an activity. This is messed up. Instead of going to London on vacation, they went to gun ranges. <laughs> yeah. The twenty-six-year-old's behavior only gets more disturbing, however. According to Oregon Public Broadcasting, his mother told investigators that he got entertainment from watching videos of killings on various websites. His mother believes that he likely planned the shooting, quote, maybe not months or weeks in advance, but at least days in advance.
1: Wow, I said, that's crazy. It sounds like he was a troubled guy. But you know what is mind-boggling to me? Why would his mother go to these shooting ranges with him? Why would she allow him access to guns? Um, And why wouldn't she report him to some social services? And again, I don't know what the right course of action here would be, but... I wish I wish she had thought of some alternatives, not the jail, not the police, but somebody else.
0: I mean, I'm not surprised by them doing a mother son activity of going to the shooting range. I am surprised that she didn't try to get him help in other ways to deal with his anger. And and maybe she, she did. I mean, clearly he was going to see doctors because he had all these diagnoses. But, you know, obviously more was needed.
1: So, Asad, what about his so-called manifesto? And you and I have to come up with a better word, but for now, we call it manifesto. Does this six-page letter provide any insights into why he committed this act?
0: Yeah, it does provide some insight, Sadia. Harper Mercer begins the letter by voicing his frustrations with society. He writes, and I quote, I have always been the most hated person in the world ever since I arrived in this world. I have been under siege from it, under attack from morons and idiots. My whole life has been one lonely enterprise, one loss after another. And here I am, 26, with no friends, no girlfriend, no job, a virgin. I long ago realized that society likes to deny people like me these things people who are elite, people who stand with the gods. End quote. To Harper Mercer, these elite godly people include several other mass shooters who serve as inspiration to him. This include the 1999 Columbine shooters, the 2012 Sandy Hook shooter, and the 2014 Isla Vista shooter, and several others. And remember, we did that episode on the Isla Vista shooter, Elliot Rodger. Yeah. In... Uh, November of this year so definitely check that episode out if you want to learn more about that one. Harper Mercer in the manifesto makes it clear that he has spent time studying and critiquing each of these mass shooters. So yeah Sadia he makes it clear in the manifesto that he has spent time studying and critiquing each of these mass shooters.
1: Oh wait so Asit he was critiquing and and, like, he was studying and critiquing them, but he was also inspired by them, right?
0: Yeah, I think, honestly, he, what he was trying to do was, uh, uh, he was inspired by them and he was trying to figure out where they went wrong in their attacks so that he could be better in his attack. Oh, okay. And, you know, as seems to be the case with many other shooters before him, Harper Mercer's violent actions appear to be a culmination of his frustrations with his loneliness and anger, as well as his psychological struggles. He is clearly angry with the world and seeks to punish others for his unhappiness. And you know, Sadia, he believes himself to be a martyr, dedicating his actions to all those like him. I mean, he even compares himself to Jesus Christ, which is just also (laughs) uh, completely insane. And believe it or not, Sadia Harper mercer's manifesto only gets worse there seems to be some satanic elements to his actions he writes that he has been forced to align himself with demonic forces what was once an involuntary relationship has now become an alignment a service he basically goes on to say that he is serving demons and that he will return to kill and kill again it's just really some dark, otherworldly stuff,
1: there. Okay, so does he believe in God or not? I'm confused because he thinks of himself as Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, yeah. And then he also aligns himself with demons. I am really confused here.
0: To make matters worse, Harper Mercer devotes a large section of his manifesto to criticisms of Black men. According to Oregon Live, he writes, and I quote, I don't hate blacks, just the men, end quote. He then claims that black women can, quote, only be saved by the castration and elimination of black men, end quote. This is particularly strange as Harper Mercer himself was mixed race, having previously identified himself as African American, white, and Native American, but he appears to blame Black men for attracting the women that did not want him. While these comments seem to lack a direct connection to the shooting, they serve as further indication of his kind of warped mindset.
1: Wow warped mindset seems like an understatement, I said, What a crazy manifesto. I don't know how to react anymore. So we are going to take another quick break. But when we return, we'll be discussing the victims who tragically lost their lives in this horrendous shooting. Welcome back to Invisible Heat. So, Asad, can you tell us a little bit about the nine victims who lost their lives to this tragic shooting?
0: Yeah, absolutely, Sadia. So the list of victims includes one assistant professor and eight students. The professor, as I mentioned, uh, was Lawrence Levine. He was 67 years old and he was an English professor of the writing class that Harper Mercer himself was a member of. According to CNN, Levine loved fly fishing, blues music, and writing. In fact, he had written several novels, none of which have ever been published. Three 18-year-old students were lost in the attack, Rebecca Ann Carnes, Quinn Glenn Cooper, and Lucas Eibel. Carnes had just started college in hopes of becoming a dental assistant. She had loved hunting, camping, soccer, and softball. Cooper, too, was just four days into college. He loved video games, dancing, martial arts, and voice acting. Ible too, had just arrived at Umpqua Community College and planned on studying chemistry. He loved volunteering at wildlife centers and animal shelters, as well as playing soccer. 59-year-old Kim Saltmarsh Dietz was studying at the college alongside her daughter, 34 year old Jason Dale Johnson had only recently enrolled in the school. He was a proud Christian. He had been excited to have finally found his path in life. And 44 year old Serena Dawn Moore was a business major and mother of three sons. She was a proud member of the local Seventh day church.
1: I said, so many lives got shot, right? It's just extremely tragic. So, was there any investigation of the shooting?
0: Yeah, you know, the investigation, you know, it didn't take them too long to determine that the killer was Christopher Harper Mercer. However, questions soon began to arise as to how the 26 year old had acquired such a large arsenal of weapons. Police had found six guns and an abundant collection of ammunition at the school. They later determined that he owned a total of 13 guns, as we mentioned. It was soon revealed that his mother, Laurel Harper, had supplied him with money, some of which he may have used to purchase guns. The FBI, therefore, began an investigation of Laurel Harper to determine whether or not she was involved in the shooting. It was ultimately concluded, however, that Harper Mercer had acted alone and no charges were filed against his mother. With that, Sadia, why don't we get to our primary question of the episode? should the umqua community college shooting be considered a hate crime
1: i so said this is a difficult one for me because the way i see it he shot a wide variety of individuals of different age groups races religions honestly to me it doesn't appear to be a hate crime now granted he did ask students about their religious affiliation before he shot them. I still think it was just a random act of violence perpetrated against random people. No specific motive as far as I can see it.
0: I think that's right, Sally. That's kind of how I see it too. There is something that we saw when we were doing our research is that a friend of the shooters told investigators that Harper Mercer was, quote, very anti-Christian and had spoken of being inappropriately touched by a man at church when he was young. And so, you know, if that's true, maybe there could be some religious motivation for why he targeted the people that he did. But as survivor Tracy Hugh told the New York Times, if religion had been a motivating factor for Harper Mercer's attack, he likely would have asked every single person their religion and would have based his shots on their responses, which, you know, didn't happen.
1: Exactly. And in his manifesto, he points to loneliness, anger and frustration with society as having a large impact on his decision to launch this attack. Right. So if exactly, anything, yeah. it's more about how he felt in terms of how the society treated him. His perception of how the society treated him was probably a trigger for him to carry out this violent act.
0: Oh, you know, I think I'm, I'm with you that it, this doesn't. Constitute a hate crime. I do wonder why he decided to target the college as opposed to you know anywhere else that he could have targeted. You know, was there something specific about that classroom, his classroom, that he felt like that's where he wanted to kill people? And we didn't find anything in our research, you know, to point in any direction whatsoever.
1: Yeah, that would be an interesting point to look more into. So, Asad, how is the community of Roseburg, Oregon, doing today?
0: Yeah, sadly, on the surface, the community seems to have largely healed, but beneath the surface, many individuals continue to struggle with the tragedy of the shooting. Janet Perkins, the mother of the 18-year-old victim Quinn Glenn Cooper, remains plagued with grief. She and her son, Cody Glenn Perkins, have struggled with mental and physical health conditions, many of which they believe have been exacerbated by their endless grief. After Quinn's death, Perkins lost most of her hair, which has only just now begun to grow back, and she continues to sleep in her son's old bedroom.
1: Oh my gosh, I said this is so sad.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, I completely sympathize with her, for sure. How do you get over something like this? Right. Uh, She and Cody are frustrated with the rest of the community for moving on and leaving them alone to grieve. In an interview with CNN, she said, and I quote, It felt like there wasn't a space for our sadness anymore, like everyone just wanted to forget it happened. Survivors, too, continue to struggle, Sadia. According to survivor professor Jenny Friedman, after the shooting, her mind quickly began to unravel. She was unable to think or focus, and she suffered from severe panic attacks. She was ultimately forced to take a two-year break from teaching while she focused on her mental health. She is now unable to remember much from the first three years after the shooting. In an interview with CNN, she said, and I quote, I thought that I had early onset dementia and spent time planning who would be the guardian for my son. I'm missing almost three years of my life. My memory is still coming back in bits and pieces. Years of therapy have helped her fill in some of the gaps, but to this day, she remains damaged by this traumatic shooting. And we can only hope that people like Perkins and Freeman continue to heal so that they can go on to live happy and healthy lives.
1: Absolutely, Asad. Now, unfortunately, many people across America struggle with such trauma and grief to this day, right? Gun violence remains a massive problem within the United States, claiming an average of 43,000 lives each year. Let that sink in. An average of 116 lives per day. According to statistics released by the Giffords Law Center to prevent gun violence, mass shooting events in particular have become all too common, as is evidenced by the 2012 Sandy Hook School shooting, the 2018 Parkland shooting, the 2023 Nashville school shooting, the 2014 Isla Vista shooting, and unfortunately, many, many more shootings. Now, we are in a crisis and we can only hope that change and progress are around the corner. But to be honest, Asad, I am very skeptical that anything positive will happen anytime soon and any sensible gun control laws will be passed and i can only hope that people will see the impact the devastating traumatic horrendous impact of school shootings or shootings in general on people and communities asad is there a way listeners can help
0: Yeah, Sadia. So I think, you know, there are a bunch of ways that you can honor the victims and the thousands of Americans that suffer from gun violence every year. One of the primary ways in which you can do so is by donating or becoming involved in nonprofit organizations like the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence or Every Town for Gun Safety. We'll have links for those in the show notes.
1: Thanks so much for listening to Invisible Hate. If you want to learn more, check out links in the show notes about the case. Please email us your thoughts on this story or any other story you think we should cover. You can reach us at info at invisiblehatepodcast.com. You can also tweet us or hit us up on Instagram. Just search for Invisible Hate Podcast. We are already in December, guys. It's incredible. <laughs> It's been almost a year since we launched Invisible Heat, and it's going strong. We are so proud of the work that we've done so far. And we couldn't have done it without all of you, each and every listener who is listening to us right now. So if you like our work, please, please share it with family, friends, post it on your social media so that other people can listen to it again.
0: 100%. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. Invisible Hate is a joint production of Refiling Media and Immigrantly. We'd like to thank our team, which includes Michaela Strather, Emmanuel Monaghan, and Peroma Chakrabarty. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson. We'll be back next week with another hate crime for us to analyze. Until then, I'm Butt,
1: And I'm Sadia Khan.